turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23, 1 Samuel chapter 23, and uh, great music tonight, and appreciate the great singing and uh, all that Brother Tim does uh, with excellence. I appreciate that so much, does a great job. Uh, when we last left David in 1 Samuel chapter 22, it seems like years ago, but it was just two weeks ago uh, with the holiday, uh, but when we last left late David, just for recap, uh, he had learned that uh, Saul had killed through his command, uh, had one of his men, Doeg, uh, slay 85 priests, an entire town, all because of David going to visit uh, this priest named Ahimelech. Ahimelech had told he was a priest and he told Saul that, hey, I, I didn't mean to uh, commit an act of quote-unquote treason. I didn't com uh, mean to uh, show any kind of disloyalty, yet that is what Saul perceived and that he was a conspirator just like David was. Uh, but even though he tried to reason with Saul, it was not enough to save Ahimelech's life and all of his family. But we talked about the fact that even though at times you might feel like, man, when I make a sinful decision, I'm the only one that knows. Remember, David later in his life in 2 Samuel committed the sin with Bathsheba and uh, had all of his bases covered. Everybody was taken care of. Everybody was covered. Uh, nobody knew about this. He thought he had it all under under wraps and the very end of 2 Samuel chapter 11 says and the thing that David did displeased the Lord. So even though David may have said, "Man, I've got everybody, everybody's covered. No one else knows." God knew. And just like we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 23, God knew what was going on and God had spared the life of this man Abiathar. And Abiathar is one of the sons of Ahimelech. And when we see him, he runs to meet up with David and, uh, in this place called Adullam. Adullam. And if we have that map, uh, that first map, we can put that up. Adullam is right here on the screen, right on the far left of the screen, right next to that forest of Horesh. And we'll see he's going to go down to Keilah today. And uh, Saul is actually up at this place, Gibeah, Gilbeah, up at the top, and about 10 miles away. And Saul's going to hear about David's location. He's going to run to meet him. Uh, but before he does, let's see kind of how it transpires out. If you have your notes, you can take uh, right down number one, the curiosity that's mentioned, the curiosity. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse number one. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, "Go, uh, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Uh, and let's just time out here for just a second. Remember, David uh, has all of these mighty men, 400 of them. We'll see by the end of the chapter, he has 600. It's grown, and he has all of these men. They bring him word, hey, the, the Philistines are fighting against this small little town called Keilah. What should we do? And he goes before the Lord, and he prays and asks the Lord, what should we do, Lord? How should we get involved? Should we do anything? And the Lord comes back and says, yes, go. And then we get to verse number 3, David's men we're like, wait, wait, time out. Uh, I don't know that we should be the ones who get involved. Maybe somebody else. Uh, send a text message and invite somebody else. Uh, get somebody else involved. But 
he asks and the men say, hey, we're afraid. If we're afraid here in the cave running from Saul, uh, what is our anxiety level going to be like if we have all these Philistines that we're now fighting? So David goes again in verse number 4. Then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, and for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. What an awesome story. David prays and says, Lord, should we go? And the men say, hey, we're afraid. And uh, he says, well, I'm going to go back to the Lord. And he goes back to the Lord a second time. And, uh, should we go? Should we confirm this prayer request? And uh, God says the second time, go, I'll save you. I'll, I'll send and I'll fight the battle for you. And as he does this, the interesting thing throughout the journey of David as he's on the run is that he is constantly fighting the Philistines. Even though he's on the run from Saul, he is still battling over and over and over. Now remember, that was David's job in Saul's army. 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul sought and set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Who did they fight in Saul's army? They fought the Philistines. So David is on errands, on the battlefield, fighting against the Philistines again and again. And remember when he meets up with Achish, uh, the king of uh, Gath. He is going out secretly and he's fighting all these Philistines and coming back with all the spoils. So he's constantly fighting the Philistines, but his number one enemy is Saul. Saul is uh, in battle with the Philistines, but he is so focused on David. He looks at David as enemy, public enemy, number one. And it's going to be to his detriment at the end of the chapter. And he's hunting one threat while someone else is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, David is out fighting all the Philistines, trying to protect the nation of Israel. And Saul, in contrast, is hunting one person. One person. But isn't that just like us at times? We're so focused on one specific thing that we miss the big picture. We're so focused on one thing, whether that's a criticism that's happened to us, or we're nursing a hurt from the past that happened years ago, as painful as it may be. Maybe the one thing that someone did to us that we just don't think we got a fair shake. Maybe someone at work that we work with, uh, they're giving us a hard time and we just dread that one person, that one instance, that one hurt, instead of focusing on the big picture of what God's trying to do. We focus on the one. But what about when something good happens? We end up focusing all of our time and attention on one thing, even though it might be good. But what about when a greater need comes up? What about when God wants to do something else in my life or use me for something else in my life or to help someone else and I'm so focused on the one thing that I overlook what God is trying to do in the big picture. Saul is so hung up on David that he's overlooking the fact that the Philistines are invading the land. That's what's happening. And we find that David hears about this city called Keilah and uh, they're in trouble. It's a small town on the border of Judah, which is in the nation of Israel, and on the border of Philistia, 
right on the edge of the enemy. It's being invaded and the men are curious. Hey, how are we going to help these people? What can we do? You ever come up to somebody and said, man, what can we do about this situation? Maybe it's a work or church or uh, in your family or friends or whatever. Hey, what can we do? And they spin it around and say, well, what do you think? Well, I, I was kind of hoping you'd have a solution. You know, uh, We just kind of throw it back and I didn't really think about it. I just wanted to know your opinion. And David says, well, I'll go ask the Lord. And the Lord says, why don't you guys go? That's what we see when we get to verse number three and the men are afraid David comes back all excited. Hey, God said we could go and fight. Well, you mean us? Well, now, us? You sure, David? Go ask again. And uh, David goes and asks again, and same response. Again and again. But think about if this would have happened to Saul. Contrast. Saul is so hung up on David. Man, if he's, if he's anywhere close, we're going. It doesn't really matter. But what does David do? David says, let's pray. Let's stop and pray and ask the Lord. He does that over and over in the course of his life. He prays the contrast. We see that David receives the ephod here from Abiathar in verse number 6, which was a, uh, like a, an apron that would be worn by the priest. It would contain the Urim and the Thummim, which was uh, an article that would be worn on the breastplate of this ephod. This is a very significant piece of clothing and he brings it and hands it to David. Almost as a sign of you're the representative. You're the one who's going to go before God for us. You are that one, David. And David is going on behalf of all of these men who are afraid. And David is waiting for that response. And he does get a response. He asks the Lord, Lord, show us what we should do. And how often do we just proceed in the day-to-day -day life that we have, whether it's at work or with our family, and we don't even pray about situations. We just kind of like roll through life. Oh, I got this, God. Hey, I, I don't even need to pray about this. I, I know exactly what to do, and we find ourselves in a mess. I like what Phillips Brooks said, If man is man and God is God, to live without prayer is not merely an awful thing. It's an, it's an infinitely foolish thing. It's not an awful thing. It's an infinitely foolish thing. Twice David prays for the man. Twice he gets a response. He's told to go. And that's what they do in verse number 5. They go and they fight. And God saves all these people and gives them the spoil, gives them cattle. And it says he smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. That's what happened. But then we find in a couple verses later, verse 7 and it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. Now, remember, he's up at Gibeah, and now he hears, hey, just a few miles away within striking distance, I can get to David. That's how close he is. Verse 7, and Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. Now, I want us to think about this for just a minute. How often do we throw God in the middle of our mess? And we try and put it on God when it's actually not God doing it. It's us trying to force God into our box. Hey, I'm trying to get God to bless. God, do you want me to, uh, to, 
take this job that's going to cause me to work more hours and be further away from my family and uh, more involved. Uh, Lord, if, if you just will give me a little wink, a little nod, I'll take it and I'll tell everybody that's you. Or maybe we say, all right, God, do you want me to take uh, this year's uh, Christmas bonus? And do you want me to uh, buy that brand new PlayStation? Lord, if you want me to have that, I'll, I'll give you all the credit. Uh, Lord, I, I promise I'll, I'll give you, I'll praise you for it, Lord. A live stream church service is on it. Uh, you know, Lord, whatever it is, I, I, I promise. And we throw God's name in as an excuse for our poor behavior. Something that I am bound and determined to do, and I kind of push through to make it happen. And then I say, well, God let me do it. I guess God wanted it to happen. I guess God wanted that to take place because he didn't zap me. So I guess that means that it's okay. But at the end of the day, Saul is blaming or praising God for something that's not God's work says, God hath delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. Keilah was a defensed city. It had high walls. It was well fortified, protected. And Saul's belief was, hey, if I get down there and he is in Keilah, the men of the city will give him up. They'll box him in and they'll work on my behalf. What a great guy Saul is, you know. David, on the other hand, has just saved all these people from being destroyed by the Philistines. You would think that they would feel some sense of loyalty to David. You would think. But as we all know, you know David's location, where he is, Saul knows, hey, I know where he is. I, I know how to get to him. But that's all Saul saw. You know, I, we don't know any indication, we don't get any indication whether or not Saul actually knew why David was in Keilah. We just know that he knew the location. You know, think about the fact Saul had a golden opportunity to say, well, why is he in Keilah? Well, you know, King, he, he was there and he saved all these people from the Philistines. He was doing exactly what you had told him to do a long time ago. This would have been a golden opportunity for Saul to see that David was still loyal. A golden opportunity for David, for Saul to see that David was not the enemy. A golden opportunity for Saul to praise David. Man, he's doing a great job. He's saving our countrymen. He's doing such an awesome work. But Saul was focused on destroying David. And that was his only focus. We need to be reminded at times to be careful what we focus on. What we focus on. What we have in our mind's eye. Isaiah 26 verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Max Licato said, focus on giants and you stumble. But focus on God and giants tumble. Where is our focus? The curiosity of these men. Are you sure it's us, David? Can't we send somebody else? But then we see, number two, the confirmation that's mentioned. While Saul is focused on David, David already knew what he was up to. Remember, Saul hears, hey, he's in Keel. I'm going to go and I'm going to strike while he's close. Verse number nine. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. 
He already knew what was coming. He already knew the last time I saw Saul, 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 uh, he was in Gibeah. I I know where he was. Uh, Therefore, when he gets word, he's coming. He already knew. So what does he do? Verse number 9, he speaks to Abiathar, the priest, and says, bring hither the ephod. Hey, bring me that apron, that garment that the priest would wear. To go before the Lord. Verse 10. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Hey, remember, loyalty didn't last long. Now this was something. Loyalty is a precious commodity that for many doesn't last long. J.R.R. Tolkien said, Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Very true. You know, when times get tough, do we lean in or do we lean out? And for David, he's leaning in saying, all right, Lord, I just need to know what these people are going to do. He knew what Saul was going to do once he got to the city. In verse number 10, he said, Saul will destroy the city for my sake. He's already killed Ahimelech, the priest, just One chapter before. He's already killed an entire city, the city of Nob. So hey, this small town, this town of Keilah, I know he'll destroy the whole city just to get to me. If that's what it takes, that's what Saul will do. He knew the heartless nature of Saul, but he didn't know what the people would do. So he goes before the Lord and says, will they give me up? Verse 11, will Saul come down? And, O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Okay, we know Saul's coming. What now? Verse number 12. Then said David, will the men of Keilah, will they be loyal to me? Will they repay me with kindness? Will they protect me? Will they uh, watch over me? Will they uh, try and keep Saul away from me? Will they deliver me up and my men in the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. Hey, you don't have any loyalty here, David. Now, there's no guarantee. You stay here, you're going to die. They're going to hand you right over. The moment Saul asks, you are a dead man. That's what's going to happen. And some people are only committed when it's convenient. Some people are only committed when it's convenient. Hey, I, I'm going to serve the Lord. I, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to show up. I'm going to be in the nursery. I'm going to be in safe house. I'm going to be on the music team. I, I'm going to be a greeter. I'm going to uh, be a Sunday school teacher. And, and I'm committed Until times get tough. I'm in, Pastor Man. I am two feet in until I have to jump out when I start having problems. See, the Christian life is all about being all in regardless of what happens. All in. Hey, it's time that we step back and say, where is our commitment level? We started this year, the very first Sunday of the year, talking about uh, where is that commitment? When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, uh, where is our commitment? If everything else gets stripped away from us, are we still in? Are we still committed to him? That's where we are. And we're still asking the same question. Why? Because we need reminding often who we belong to and what he requires of our lives. We need to be reminded that times aren't going to always be easy. Remember, Paul said at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Now, 
we can get to the end of our life and say that. But most of our lives will not look like the Apostle Paul. We will not face the things that he faced. Remember, he talked about those things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 28. He said, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. He was whipped 39 lashes five different times. Five different, hey, you lash us twice and we're, hey, I'm done. Done. Hey, you can have whatever you want at that point. You can have the keys to the car, you know, whatever. Uh, at this time, five times. And it says, thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That means in the water, in the, in the sea. He was literally floating for a night and a day. It says, in journeyings often, in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils by my own countrymen, people turned against him. Perils by the heathen, perils in the city and perils of the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, cold and nakedness, beside those things or without those things which came upon me daily, the care of all the churches. This is the same guy who says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. And it's easy for us to say, man, that is me, Pastor. I'm going to keep the faith. But can we... Lean in when times get tough. Instead of leaning out and looking for an escape route, can we lean in? Where is the Lord going to break through? We know it's coming. I don't know when or how. Because here's the bottom line. Paul did not allow the lack of convenience in following Christ to sway his commitment to Christ. He didn't allow that lack of convenience It's not convenient to follow Christ. Man, I would rather not be beaten. I'd rather not be whipped. I'd rather not be shipwrecked or stoned. But I made a commitment to follow Christ. And if that means that I have to suffer, so be it. That's what Paul's saying. You know, remember Peter said, I believe it's 1 Peter chapter 5. Don't quote me, but I know it's 1 Peter. Remember Peter said, talked about how Christ suffered for us and that we should follow his steps. I've heard preachers preach messages on following the steps of Jesus and we should follow in his steps and even in the book, In His Steps. It's a great book. What would Jesus do? But that passage of Scripture is talking about us being willing to suffer like Jesus suffered. Shame, rejection, despair, discouragement, uh, all of these things, rebuke. All of those things. And man, I want to walk with Jesus. But that involves suffering for Jesus. I don't know how many of us are ready for that. I don't know if I'm ready for that. But that's where the rubber meets the road in following Jesus. There was curiosity. Hey, are are you sure, David, it's supposed to be us? And then there was a confirmation. The Lord wants us to do this. And uh, the Lord's letting us know that Saul is going to get to us if we stay here. But then we see the concern. Look at verse 13 through 24. Have you ever felt like every single day it's a perpetual battle? When I go to bed, when I wake up tomorrow morning, it's going to be the same old battle. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go wake up and uh, that spouse is still going to be. No, I'm kidding. Uh, You know, it's that job is still going to be there. That struggle is still going to be there. That issue is still going to be there. That hurt is still going to be there. Have you ever wondered every single day? It's just not going to change. It's not going to get any better. That's where David is. Look at verse number 13. Then David and his men 
which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could. Hey, we're just getting out of town. we got to get out of here. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbade to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And here it is. And Saul sought him every day. Every day. David woke up every morning wondering if it was his last. Every day. Wondering, is today going to be the last day? That was David's life on the run. Some commentators believe that he was on the run for 17 years. Years on the run. This is not just a three-week thing. This is years he's on the run. And David... Over and over and over wondering. But the end of the verse is the great part of the verse. Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. How how bad could our situation be if God said, you can have him, Saul. How bad could our situation be if God was not holding back the floodgates? Wouldn't it be awesome just once for the Lord to reveal his protection in our lives? Just so that we could have a visual reminder that God is watching over us. But you know, he did do that because he gave us this book. He gave us his word. He gave us something in black and white and red that we can look and see as a reminder that he's protecting us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and keep you from evil. Psalm 34, 7 and 8, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. The Lord does not lose track of his people. He's always in tune. He's always watching over us. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He's watching us. But while David is wondering, every Day, here's where we'll kind of bring it to a close tonight. While he is wondering what is going to happen next, right on the heels of that, somebody comes to see David. Look at verse number 16. And Jonathan, you remember that guy? Jonathan, Saul's son. Just the irony of those four words. And Jonathan, Saul's son. You remember David's best friend? The guy who wanted David dead? His son. His oldest son. The guy who should have been in line to be the king after Saul. It wasn't that he was a bad guy. It's just that David was the chosen one. And Jonathan comes to see David. For what purpose? One reason only. And he strengthened His hand in God. We all need a friend like that. 
And we all need to be that kind of friend. Every single one of us. You know, Jonathan showed up and said, David, I just want to encourage you to be faithful and be focused that God is still in control. What did he say? Look at verse number 17. And he said unto him, fear not. Every day, every day, you're waking up wondering if God's going to answer, if God's going to save you, if Saul's going to get you. And Jonathan's first words, fear not. Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find thee. Hey, remember, God would not let him go into his hand, protecting him. Verse 17, and thou shalt be king over Israel. And here, I love this. And Jonathan says, and I shall be next unto thee. Hey, when that happens, David, I'm going to be right next to you as your cheerleader, cheering you on. You're going to be the king. By doing this, Jonathan is forsaking his claim to the throne. Did you realize that? You're the next king, David. Not me, but I'm going to be standing right next to you, encouraging, cheerleading. I'm going to be the person who is rallying people for you. Now, we know what happens. Just a few chapters later, did that ever take place? Nope. Jonathan dies on the battlefield. This is the last time that we have in Scripture recorded that they were together. The last time. And what is Jonathan doing? He's encouraging David to stay faithful. He's encouraging him to be faithful, to be focused. But when was the last time we reached out to someone who was struggling, who was hurting, who's discouraged, who's in despair, who's depressed, who's defeated, And just remind them who God is and that he's still faithful and he's still good. And using the past to play history lesson. Hey, remember when God did this? Remember when God came through here? Remember how God has blessed all these over and over and over? When are we that person? Are we that person? We all need somebody like that, but we all need to be somebody like that. We need to be that person. That's our job, church. You know, are we supposed to expect the world to do that? Not on your life. It's not going to happen. We're supposed to be the one that remind brothers and sisters in Christ that God is still faithful and he is still loyal to us. Jonathan points David back to God's promises. Here, let me give you five traits of true Christian friends real quick for your notes. Number one, a true friend loves sacrificially. A true friend loves sacrificially. Remember John 15, verse 13, uh, greater love has no man than this, a man lay down his life for his friend. A true love, a true friend loves sacrificially. They're willing to make sacrifice. Because of one another, we're willing to make sacrifice. That might mean that we have to put our own needs, desires on the back burner so that I can be a friend. Hey, I'm tired. That friend calls me at 11 o'clock at night and says, hey man, I just, I just needed to talk to somebody. Call me at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning because I'm going to sleep. You know, they love sacrificially. They have to be able to sacrifice. Number two, a true friend accepts unconditionally. Accepts unconditionally. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times. Unconditionally. In the good times, in the bad times, in the weird times, in the strained times. A true friend accepts unconditionally. Might not always agree. But hey, I can accept you even though I might not agree with you. Number three, a true friend trusts 
completely. Trusts completely. There is a friend, Proverbs 18, 24, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. A true friend trusts completely. Number four, a true friend keeps healthy boundaries. Keeps healthy boundaries. We do realize that none of us are going home with our best friends tonight. And I'm not talking about your wife. But none of us are going home with our best friends tonight. And our best friend's not getting up and getting in the car with us tomorrow morning, going to work with us. And, uh, you know, holding our hand as we go in. Hey, we're friends. Let's go. You know, I love you. You love me. You know, we're going into work together because we're friends. That's what we do. None of us are doing that. Okay? We set healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries. And we need those. Love is patient. Love is kind. Patient. Having those boundaries. And then number five, a true friend gives mutual edification. Mutual edification. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we need to hear the things we don't want to hear from our friends. Sometimes we need to be encouraged and sometimes we leave discouraged at the hands of a friend. But sometimes we need to hear it. And if we're not going to hear it from our friends, hey, I'd rather hear uh, things that I don't want to hear from a friend than an enemy. Hey, I just want to tell you about this blind spot I've noticed, and I just want to tell you about this because I love you and you're my friend and I want to protect you. It gives mutual edification. And that friend also is willing to receive that mutual edification. That's what friends are. And Jonathan was that friend in the life of David and confirmed his support. He was next in line for Saul's throne and gave it up for the purpose of being David's friend. Are you that kind of friend? Are you that person who has that friend? Let me give you the last two points and we'll close. There's the catastrophe in verse 25 and 26. And we see that Saul surrounds David, finally gets to him in the wilderness of Maon. David is hiding himself. He gets there. And maybe we feel like at times we're surrounded. Every, everywhere I look, the enemy's all around me, just like the children of Israel were at the Red Sea. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got mountain range on each side of them. They've got Pharaoh's army behind them, and they're surrounded. They're close. There's nowhere to go. And Moses said, hey, you just need to stand still and see God come through. You need to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Maybe that's where we are. And if we don't ever believe that the Lord will come through for us, we'll never be wrong. If we don't ever believe that the Lord is going to come through, we'll never be wrong. We have to trust him. And then lastly, the control. Number five. In verse 27 and 28, right on as they were boxed in. It tells us in verse 26 that you got Saul's army divided in half and they're totally surrounded. And in that very moment, the very next verse, but there came a messenger unto Saul. Just as Saul is getting ready to strike the death blow and finally get David, Saul gets a text message. He gets an email. A messenger says, hey, you got to come home. Haste thee. You ne- Saul, you need to come right now. Because the Philistines are invading. Hey, back home. They're invading the land. While you're out here, Saul, while you're out here chasing one guy, remember, focused on one thing. While you're out here chasing one guy, the Philistines are coming in the back door. They're coming in. And what does Saul do? Wherefore, verse 28, Saul returned from pursuing after David. He said, time out. David's going to have to wait. 
Because as much as he didn't want to lose the throne, Saul didn't want to lose his entire kingdom. David was just one piece. The entire kingdom Saul couldn't afford to lose in his mind. But here's the thing that we're, we'll close with. The name of where he was. You see in verse number 28, David is in a rocky place, a rough terrain. It says in verse number 26, I believe, talks about the rock that he hit in, or verse number 25, that he went down to a rock. And he called in verse number 28, the name, they gave that place a name. This long Hebrew name, Salah Hamah Lehoth. Salah Hamah Lehoth. That's what it's called. Salah Hamah Lehoth. And it means something. Here it is. It means the rock of escape. Hang with me. The rock of escape. David didn't have to do anything to escape from Saul. Remember, David's boxed in. David had nowhere to go. Something had to take place for David to be saved. And God orchestrated the escape. It was the rock of escape. The thing that I love about this name is it reminds us of our rock today. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 4? And they all drank the, the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. See, we have a rock, church. And he offers us escape. Escape from our sin. Escape from suffering one day. Escape from all of the pressures of life. He said, if you come to me, I'll give you rest. All of these things. He is our rock of escape. He is our Salah Hama Lahoth. That's who he is. He is the rock of escape for us. And it looked like David is getting ready to get killed because he was totally and completely surrounded. And then God stepped in. And that's exactly how he operates. But do we trust him enough to be our rock of escape? Or are we out there saying, all right, I'm going to try and figure this out. I'm going to call in the, you know, call in the uh, Delta Force. And I'm going to call, hey, why can't we just understand that this is the Lord's battle and he's going to fight it, but we got to trust him. We got to trust him instead of us. Father, thank you so much for being our rock of escape. Lord, I ask that you please help us to see you at work in our lives and help us to trust you. Even when we might feel like we're surrounded and things are never going to change and we're fighting this same battle every day, over and over and over, Lord, help us to trust and lean into our rock of escape. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and what you do for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to our prayer time, and the guys are walking around handing out our prayer sheets. Please continue to pray uh, for our church family.